Good morning. It is great to resume the Parsha class. I'm sorry we missed several weeks, but it's good to be back. And please, God, we will uh, hopefully have a good string and uh, smooth sailing from here. I want to thank our sponsors this morning, uh, Rosalind Greenberg Haskell, in loving memory of her husband, Lester Greenberg. Thank you so much. His neshama should have an aliyah. We have the privilege this morning of studying Parsha's Vayera. We're in the Art School Stone Chumash, page 78. And as always, we'll do an overview of the Parsha, touch on some of the uh, different points within the Parsha, and then delve into some specific psukim together. And we're going to pick up exactly where we left off last year. I had made a note. I think last year we did a whopping two psukim together. And I made a note exactly where we left off. Hopefully we'll do more than two psukim today. And uh, we'll continue to plow forward studying through the Parsha. So Vayera ends, or Vayera rather begins, where Lech Lecha left off. The brismila had happened. Avram circumcised his son, uh, Yishmael, at the time. Yishmael was how old? 13. 13. Avram was even more advanced than his age. A major procedure, a circumcision, a surgery on himself. The recovery is not easy at eight days old. Certainly it's not easy at that advanced age. So Avram is sitting outside his tent. He's recovering and he's visited by none other. We know the Ribbon Shalom. Hashem Amrei. Hashem appears before Avram while he's sitting outside. Why is Avram sitting outside? Usually you come home from the outpatient surgical center, you get into bed, and you milk it as long as you can, you have other people wait on you hand and foot, you take the wonderful narcotics, you live in the uh, world, the uh, never-never land, and you enjoy. Avram instead is sitting right outside, he comes home, he's positioned right outside his tent. And the answer is because for Avram... The thought of being inhospitable, the thought of being self-centered, the thought of not being there to help others was more painful than recovering from surgery. When the anesthesia would wear off, it would be more painful to retreat and not be helping others than it would be to even be outside recovering. Avram is being visited by Hashem. We learn, we walk in Hashem's ways, we emulate Him. Just like Hashem is Mavakir Cholam, Hashem visits the sick, so too we visit the sick. So Hashem and, Hashem, uh, and Avram are involved in a visit, in a dialogue in Bikr Cholam. Avram is engaged in a conversation with Hashem. When all of a sudden the phone rings, three strangers he sees walking off in the distance, and he says to Hashem, Would you mind holding on a minute? I've got to welcome these strangers. We've spoken about this at length in the past, I'm not going to get into it right now. But Chazal learned from here, hospitality is so great. Having an open home is so important that it even transcends, it's greater than Kabbalah's Pnei In the middle of a conversation with God, God would rather you interrupt Him and go be hospitable to His people. Which is a strange formulation. I would think that there's nothing greater for humanity than being in conversation with our Creator. What could be greater so to say hospitality, offering a drink, offering shade, offering sleeping arrangements, that's greater? Why is it greater? We've discussed it in the past. We're not going to get into it now. So Avram is sitting. The Pasuk describes that Avram is sitting when Hashem, when Hashem visits. V'hu Yoshev Pesach HaOhel. Avram is sitting. Rashi on these words says, B'kesh Lamod. God visits Avram. So if an important, significant scholar, a righteous person, man or woman, walks in the room, you want to stand, you want to rise, you want to honor them. So all the more so, Avram is being visited by Hashem, he wants to stand and honor him. 
You sit, I'll stand. And this is a symbol for the future because God says, I will stand while your children sit. And when is that? What is that foreshadowing? That God stands at a communion at an adas keel when the dayanim, when there's a din Torah taking place and the three dayanim, the three judges sit. And when the three judges sit, the presence of Hashem can be felt. That's why there's Allah and Shekhanach and Chosh and Mishpat. The Dayanam are supposed to sit batifas arosh. They're supposed to sit with their heads covered. Because when Hashem is present, we feel the weight of Hashem. We have not only a physical humility and modesty, an intellectual humility and modesty. Intellectual humility and modesty is symbolized by a covering on one's head. That's Rashi. So Rabbi Soloveitchik wonders. What in the world is the connection between God doing Bikr Cholom to Avram, who's sitting outside his tent, and a judge who's adjudicating, who's listening to a trial, to a case, and God being present in the background of that judge? What's the connection between these two things? Why would Rashi join them together? So listen to what the Rav says. He was sitting at the entrance of the tent. Yoshev is the present tense, but the Vav is missing, allowing the word to be read as Yashev in the past tense, Yashav. Rashi here quotes a strange medrash. Avram was seated, he wanted to get up. Hashem said, remain seated, I'll stand. And the fact that you remain seated symbolizes something will happen in the future. Noting judges must sit when they accept testimony, when they render the decision. Rashi continues, God said, I will stand, the judges will be sitting. As it says, God stands in the congregation of God. What ideas does Rashi want to convey? When an important, dignified person comes to us, we rise and receive them. The host stands at the door receiving his guests. The Holy One came to visit Avram, so Avram jumped up from his seat. Hashem said, you're making a mistake, Avram. You consider yourself the host and I the guest, but the opposite is true. I am the host and you are the guest. I am receiving you, not in your tent, but in my tent. This is my tent. Nothing on earth is truly yours, so remain seated. It's an amazing insight, right? The host gets up in order to receive the guest. But Hashem says, you sit and I'm standing because I want you to realize that the whole world belongs to me. That I am in fact the host, and you are the guest. And now we see the connection, says the Rav. Because the same is true in every courtroom. Judaism has never accepted the concept of one person judging another. How can a human being who's just as imperfect as the accused render judgment on him? What right does a judge have? Who made the judge so perfect in such a position to be able to judge others? Judgment belongs to Hashem, the Pasuk says. Yet the Torah indeed allows human judgment. Because if human beings were not permitted to judge their fellow man, anarchy would prevail. Nonetheless, the judge must always remember that he is just, here's a great word from the Rav, a plenipotentiary. Anyone know what that word is? A plenipotentiary? You've got to bring your dictionary to the parasha class when you invoke the Rav. <laughs> a judge must always remember he is a plenipotentiary, which means, for you boors, I'll define it for you. Just joking, the Rav explains it here. I had no idea what it was. An agent or a messenger from the Almighty, who is the real judge. What does it mean? He is the owner. He is the master. We are guests and tenants who will be invited to take a seat while Hashem the host remains standing. Why is it that God stands when there's a congregation of judges? So the judges realize that they are ambassadors, they're emissaries of Hashem. They're not in the position to judge others. 
Only Hashem can. So Hashem is standing there with them. He is the real judge. They are just His mouthpiece. They should feel the weight of godliness, the significance, the responsibility, the awesome responsibility. That's really what's going on here. Okay, the Rav has more, but we'll continue. So the angels come, and Avram welcomes them. He's held accountable for the fact that he doesn't jump up. He sends his son, Yishmael, to go take them, which seems bizarre. Wouldn't you think he's doing the right thing? He's trying to educate his son. What does Rashi say? Because he sends Yishmael, Hashem too is going to interact with us through an intermediary. And you think, well, what do you mean? Isn't it the right thing to teach his son to go and be hospitable? Wasn't that the right thing? Why is God punishing him or holding him accountable? So commentaries say, because Avram should have led by example. Before you could tell your son, you go do, your son needs to see that you go do. He should have been the one to jump, to react, to lead by example, because that's the most powerful lesson. It's the most powerful influence on his son. So Avram treats his, uh, his guests, who he thinks are human beings, but of course we know they're the three angels who came to carry out these three independent and separate missions. And what does he say to them? Yukach nam Take some water, wash your feet. What was Avram concerning himself with? What did he want to not enter his home? That their feet were used in the process of idolatry, and Avram didn't want exposure to that idolatry. So he says, you wash your feet, and then I'll give you something to eat. Later, when Lot welcomes his guests, when he's living in stone, what does he do? First he says, come, rest, have something to eat. And then later he gives them. It's in the opposite order. And Rashi there tells us why. So here Rabbi Soloveitchik points out, the cruelty of stone is portrayed in terms of cruelty to guests and strangers. In contrast, Avram's kindness expressed itself, particularly in Hachnasas Orchem. There are so many ways to practice kindness. Why is Hachnasas Orchem so emphasized here? Godol Hachnasas Orchem. Greater than a dialogue, a conversation, greater than a rendezvous with Hashem, is hospitality, is welcoming guests. What's so great about welcoming guests? Enjoy the company of guests. Why is that greater than giving tzedakah? It's greater than when I take from my hard-earned money, my savings, my wallet, my checkbook, my Venmo account. Why is it greater even hospitality? So Rabbi Soloveitchik says, Hachnasas Orchem is often for the poor. A rich man is in no need of hospitality. He can find an inn or a place to stay. Yet Hachnasas Orchem differs from tzedakah or material help to others in a crucial way. Giving tzedakah demonstrates sympathy. Hachnasas Orchem, however, demonstrates full human equality. The belief that every human being has dignity and is just as important as any other. It is much easier to give someone money and send them away than to invite him in under your own roof. If I invite him or her in, it means that no matter what his station in life, I'm treating him with respect as an equal. Hachnasas Orchem is a symbol of our personal relationship. The understanding that all Jews are b'nei malachim, princes, regardless of differences in wealth or knowledge. That is why the Torah gives us this picture of Avraham. Avraham was not a philanthropist. He was a rich man, and there's no doubt that he was charitable to others. But to a certain degree, it's easy to write a check. If certainly it doesn't deplete or take away from your lifestyle, if it's not going to hurt your quality of life, to write a check is easy. But to take someone in, to go beyond your comfort zone, to forfeit your privacy, to offer hospitality, that's even greater than charity. It takes much more, and it conveys a greater message. When you give charity, what's the message you're conveying? You're poor, you're indigent, you need my help, and I'm greater than you. I'm the one with the large bank account. I'm the one that you had to come grovel and beg to. I'm the one who can save you, provide for you. Staka communicates superiority. Hachnasas communicates equality. 
We're going to break bread. We're going to sit. We're going to communicate. Because the rich person could pay to stay at a hotel, but when you offer them achnas asorchim, you could eat, you could afford food, you could afford food, but the achnas asorchim says, I have respect for you, I recognize. We had over uh, recently a group of, um, of singles, and afterwards we were talking, and the challenge of how many Shabbos has come by where they're not invited by anyone. They sit by their Shabbos table all alone. And, and my heart literally went out, my heart was broken. As one of the women described, she said, my neighbors don't even know my name. What would be one more seat at their table? They have large families. I see they have these meals with all these families together. Do they not have room for one more chair? She said, I can afford to eat on my own. I can go buy food. I can make my own food. It's not money. It's exactly the rub's insight here. She said, it's not a money issue. I don't need a handout. I can make my own meal. I can buy my own meal. But the company, the dignity to overcome the loneliness for the single who every week is waiting, will I get invited, will I not get invited, do I have to grovel, do I have to hint, do I have to ask, can I have the basic dignity of someone else thinking of me, inviting me, welcoming me, making room for me, it's something that we all need to work on and redouble our efforts to be mindful as we enjoy our tables that we always have room, a chair or many for others because hachnas sorchem is not about the money, staka is all about the money. Now, even the way you give the money can be with dignity, without dignity, how we give tzedakah, the hierarchy of the levels of tzedakah, the greatest tzedakah, anonymous, and you don't know the recipient because you preserve the dignity. Of course, there's hierarchy within tzedakah, but tzedakah is all about the money. Achnas Sorchen is almost not about the money at all. Linda gets calls every week. There are people who come to town who are either visiting a irreligious loved one and need a place for Shabbos, or they have a religious loved one who's in a hospital, they need hospitality. Okay, the people who just want a free place to stay in the winter, that's already taking advantage and not so simple. Although we try to accommodate everybody. But there are people who need it, and they don't need it. They don't need money. They don't need a handout. It's not staka. They need dignity. They need respect. They need love. They need to be made to feel like equals. And that's gadol hachnasus orchem mekabalas pnei hashchina. That's what it means to be like God, because God is sensitive and cares. To God, nobody's invisible. Nobody's inconsequential. Tashem, everybody matters. And How do we most emulate Hashem? I think we say it every year because it's such an important insight. When you're speaking to God, you interrupt it to be hospitable. Why? Because Hashem says, if I have the choice of either you're talking to me or you're being like me, I'd rather you be like me. If I have the choice of you either talking to me or emulating me, I'd rather you go emulate me. Imagine your child, you're on the phone with your child and your child says, I'm sorry, Abba, there's a knock on the door, there's somebody who needs something, do you mind if I just go help them? Would you say, yeah, I mind, you're talking to me, what chutzpah? Let them knock, let them wait. Or you'd say, you're going to help them? Everything I paid all that money for that Jewish education, everything I tried to teach you by example, and you want to hang up on me so you could go help someone? You can't hang up fast enough. Absolutely hang up on me, go help them. Because I'd rather you be like me, I'd rather you actualize the values I've tried to teach you than even to continue a conversation with me. Staka anyone can do. Hachnas HaSorchim is even greater. It's the measure of Avram, and it's the measure of, of us. So these angels came, they have a mission. What's their mission? Three angels, three missions. One of them is they come to tell Avram, I know you're a gazillion years old, and your wife is a gazillion years old, uh, but she's going to have a baby. Which is a pretty radical, radical promise. It's a pretty crazy, pretty, pretty crazy thing. And where is Sarah when the angel's having this conversation with Avram? In the tent. In the tent. And the angel says, Ayei Sarah Ishtacha. 
Where's Sarah, your wife? And Avram says, Hine Ba'ol. She's in the tent. So Rabbi Soloveitchik says, These travelers were not ordinary people whose eyes see only the surface. They were angels of Hashem. Their glimpse penetrated and apprehended the image of the true leader, teacher, and prophetess, to whom everything should be credited. Nonchalantly, they remarked, Where's Sarah, your wife? What were they saying is, without her, you could not play the part that God assigned to you. Where is she? You're half a person without her. Avram, you're outside, you've welcomed us, you've engaged us. Avram's very humble, so they don't mean you think you're all that. But they're saying, where's Sarah? Where's your other half? Or we would say, where's your better half? Why do people not know the truth? Why has she been trailing behind you? Why does she not march in front of you? After all, the covenant cannot and will not be realized without her. Avram, you're incomplete. Avram, you're just a dream and an aspiration without her. She is the one who enabled and empowered you to get it done. And what does Avram answer tersely? She's in the tent. Indeed, she's enveloped in mystery. Sarah, the biblical woman, is modest, humble, self-effacing. She enters the stage when she's called upon, acts her part with love and devotion in a dim corner of the stage and then leaves softly by a side door without applause and without the enthusiastic response of an audience which is hardly aware of her. She returns to her tent to anonymity and retreat. Only sensitive people know the truth. It's interesting, says Rabbi Soloveitchik, that although Avram survived Sarah, how many more years did Avram live than Sarah? A long time. 38 years. His historic role came to an end with Sarah's passing. We no longer see Avram making an imprint on history after Sarah died. Because in fact, he is incomplete without her. He's a man of dreams, his head's in the clouds, he's charismatic, he's an orator, he's an incredibly, incredible person. But without his life partner, who helps him actualize his potential, who gives his expression to his dreams, without his life partner, who's not his equal, she's not his equal. What is she in fact? His superior, she's greater. We're told, Sarah has greater nevuah than Avram Avinu. She has a greater prophecy than Avram. So when she leaves the stage, she takes him with her. Even though he lives 38 more years, he is retired the moment she passes. Yitzchak leaves the stage with Rivka. Yaakov relinquishes his role to Yosef with the untimely death of Rachel. Without Sarah, there would be no Avram. No Yitzchak, if not for Rivka, no Yaakov without Rachel. Rabbi Salavechik, he is from Family Redeemed, but in this, and I'm not going to get into this, both because I don't want to spend the time and because I value my life, but I'm not going to get into it in depth. But I think with this Rabbi Salavechik, who we know Rabbi Salavechik is not, you know, from the traditionalist camp. He doesn't have this archaic, fanatical view of the world and of women. Rabbi Salavechik, the first person who gave a shear to women in Gemara at Stern College. Rabbi Salavechik, who was so progressive in so many ways. But really in this passage, I think the Rav articulates very beautifully some of the gender differences and roles and without making his statement right now, I think it's interesting to reflect on. He paints a portrait of Sarah, who in fact is really at the forefront. She's greater than Avram. Only in partnership do they achieve what they do. Right? In last week's Pasha, we're told that when they travel, when they journey, they bring with them the nefesh hasha'asu the souls they crafted, they molded in Haram, which Rashi tells us, who are these souls? Was Sarah in the kitchen making them potato kugel and Avram was the one teaching them all about the Bible codes? No. Each of them is playing an educational role, a pedagogic role. Nobody's in the background of the other. They're equal partners in transforming the world. 
But I think what's outstanding about the Rav's description is that there's no need for fanfare, spotlight, notoriety, fame. It's not about elbowing or edging who has the bigger name or the recognition. It's about the mission and accomplishing it. And Sarah is able to preserve a sense of modesty, humility, even mystery or anonymity. Hine ba'ohel. She's satisfied being in the background because to her, the goal is the mission, is getting it accomplished, is having it achieved. I wrote an article a couple years ago. I had come back from the opening of a brand new beautiful Chabad center. And um, I won't say where. I don't think I said where in the article either. And I came back with a conclusion that the greatest feminists in the Orthodox community today, by far, are Chabad. What do I mean by that? Not feminists in the... In the um, activist sense, but you know how many Chabad Rebetzins are really running the Chabad house? In many of them where the Chabad Rebetzin maybe has a little bit more charisma or leadership qualities, they're up there, they're the MC at the event, they're the speaker, they're raising the money, they're functioning as an assistant rabbi or maybe the senior rabbi and their husband's functioning as the assistant rabbi and I saw it that night at that opening. So why does it work? How come those who are so concerned or defensive or protective against feminism within the Orthodox community haven't even noticed that that's what's happening within Chabad? And I would argue the reason is because these Chabad Rebetzins are not about, they're not doing it as women. They're not advocating lobbying, say we women, look what we can do, we're women, we need notoriety, fame, recognition. They're doing it because they're, they're very dedicated and devoted to the mission. It's not about their gender, it's not about a power struggle, it's not about who did it. It's about the mission. It's about the goal. It's about achieving it. And I think that's very beautifully what Rabbi Soloveitchik describes here about Ayes Sarah Ishtecha. Where's Sarah? Everyone knows she's your superior. She's a greater prophetess. Where is she? Why isn't she here at the forefront? Why isn't she center stage? Why isn't she standing under the spotlight? To which Avram says, She is greater than I. And Avram's off the stage once she's gone. But she's satisfied. It's about the mission. It's not about the notoriety or the or the fame. Hashem approaches Avram and says, Avram, after this promise about children, again, we won't get into this, we spoke about this in the past, but Sarah reacts by laughing. She's held accountable by God for laughing, highly criticized. That's very troubling, because what happened at the end of last week's parsha? When Hashem tells Avram, you're going to have a child, and he says, what are you talking I'm an old man. How does he react? He laughs. Rashi in last week's parsha already recognized this. Avram laughs. No problem. Sarah laughs, she's criticized, she's condemned. Later, they're going to laugh again. And in fact, what do they name this child? Laughter. So is the laughing good, is the laughing bad? Unclus is the key to understanding that. We've discussed it in the past. So they come, God tells Avram, listen Avram, you're my main man. That's paraphrasing. But basically, you're my main man. Where's this Pasuk? Hashem comes to say, I'm going to destroy Sodom. I can't cover, I can't conceal from Avram what I'm going to do. He's the father of humanity. He's going to transform the world. Avram's my main man. So I have a right-hand man, Avram. I'm about to intervene in the world in such a significant way. How can I keep that from Avram? Now, why does he feel so compelled to share it with Avram? What is Hashem attracted to about Avram? That Avram was Megayar Hasa Anashim? That Avram had a podcast 
millions of listeners, introduced ethical monotheism to the world. Is that what God loves about Avram? No. What does God love about Avram? Hashem loves that Avram successfully raising his child, his children, to follow his way. Because I know, I know, So the Rambam wonders, what is this Derech Hashem? What exactly is the way of God, the Derech Hashem that Avram taught for posterity? What is it that he successfully transmitted to his progeny, to his family, to his followers? What is this Derech Hashem? The book of the Ramchal? What is the Derech Hashem? It's very ambiguous. What's this Derech Hashem that Avram successfully transmitted? Because that's the secret. That's the core. God says, why can't I conceal anything from Avram? Why do I feel compelled to share everything with him? What I love about Avram, what endears him to me, is he's given the Derech Hashem to his children. What is this Derech Hashem? So the Rambam famously writes, towards the end of the first chapter of Hilchos Deus, what is the Derech Hashem? The Shvil Hazahav. To live life with the golden mean. To not be extreme in any direction. To be measured, to be moderate, what if Shechter would call to be normal. Shechter, Hashem wants you to be normal. Just wants you, Halach is there not to make you fanatical, Halach is there not to make you OCD. Halach is there not to make you... Halach is there normal. Be normal. Rabbi Shechter would translate Derech Hashem that Avram gave his children as be normal. Follow Hashem's footsteps, embrace his values, live the lifestyle, observe the halacha, but be normal. What the Raman calls the Shvil Hazav, the golden mean, moderation. Be moderate. Don't grow angry easily, but don't respond Passively, don't withhold money, the needy, don't give it all away either, don't overindulge, but don't deprive yourself. Everything is about the golden mean, to be moderate, to be moderate in everything, in everything that we do. So that's the Derech Hashem. What Hashem loved about Avram is that Avram was not fanatical, he wasn't extreme in any direction. There wasn't an agenda in ism, it was moderate, it was normal. It was a golden, it was the golden mean. So what does he tell Avram? I can't conceal from you, I have to share with you, I'm going to destroy Sodom. To which Avram protests, that's the part we're going to look at more closely together, momentarily, that Avram protests and says, no, 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 you can't do that. And we'll see that. We'll see that together. The parsha continues, Sodom is destroyed. And what happens when Sodom is destroyed? Who is saved? Avram is successful in saving one person, namely, his nephew Lot. His nephew Lot. And when he saves his nephew Lot, there's something really incredible. Something really incredible in his saving Lot. Why would you think he would not be motivated to save Lot? Why might, why might he not be motivated? What? Lot represents the antithesis of his values. There wasn't enough room in Israel for the two of them. They went their separate ways. And yet, he's intervening. Sodom, the destruction of Sodom would represent Avram's greatest triumph, if you think about it. Sodom represents everything that Avram has been preaching against, everything he's been protesting, everything he's been opposing. The destruction, the demise of Sodom would be Avram's greatest triumph. And yet, his nephew is there, and he is 
suspects that there might be ten righteous people there, and if in fact there's righteous people within that city, even though it could be his victory, the pursuit or defense of justice for Avram supersedes what could be his greatest victory. For Avram, he's so humble that he's able to say the defense of righteous people is more important than even what could be his greatest triumph or his greatest victory over what were his enemies. Lot is told, flee the city, and what? Al tabit acharecha. That uh, Lot is told, go outside, and don't turn around. Al tabit acharecha. Run! Don't turn around, flee to the hills, lest you be slept away, swept away. And despite the warning of the angel, who couldn't help herself? Lot's wife. She couldn't herself. She looked, she turned around, and our tradition teaches us she became a pillar of salt. In fact, the Jewish historian Josephus claims to have seen the pillar of salt, which was Lot's wife. My son, my six-year-old son who loves learning the Parsha, has these Parsha books, and is obsessed with these Parshas, oh, keeps asking me, is the salt still there? Can we see it? What does it look like? Josephus claims he saw the salt. Why the emphasis on not looking back? What would have been so bad if they looked back? So the classic answer is, why shouldn't they look back? Because they weren't any more righteous than the people who are being destroyed. Don't turn around and gaze and look with some sense of superiority. Don't turn around and gaze as if you have virtue. You can't look. You're not any more righteous than those people. You don't deserve to witness their downfall. So don't turn around and don't look. That's the classic understanding of why they were told not to turn around. But the Divrei Shmuel, Shmuel Weinberg of Slonim, gives a different perspective. Listen to his pshat. It's fantastic. He says, in telling Lot and his family, Al Tabet Acharecha, don't look back, the angel was teaching a fundamental lesson in life. When you've made mistakes, you showed poor judgment, you came up short, don't look back. Tomorrow will be another day. Only look forward. If you look back, filled with regret and remorse, you could beat yourself up, you become paralyzed, you become incapacitated. You not only lost the past, but you forfeit your present and you sabotage your future. If you want to be able to turn the corner and do better next time, don't get hung up. Don't beat yourself up. Now, do we have to turn around to understand where we went wrong? Absolutely. Charata, regret, remorse is part of the process of tshuva. means don't harp on the past. Don't turn around. Now, whether Lot's wife was nostalgic for her sinful past or she felt guilty about it. Either way, she turned into a pillar of salt. What's the symbolism? Did it ever occur to you, why salt? Turn into a pillar of tar. Turn into a pillar of acid. Turn into a pillar of, I don't know, spoiled fruit. Why salt? What does salt do? What is salt's quality? Salt preserves. And what it's spread on, it keeps intact. Salt denies the ability to grow or to change or to move forward. Salt locks in as a preservative something exactly the way it is and holds it back from changing. Don't turn back because if you do, you'll be a pillar of salt. If you're focused and fixated, if you're debilitated by harping on the past, by beating yourself up, by being nostalgic, by being stuck, then you're a pillar of salt then you can't move forward, then you can't grow.
This is the greatest way our Yetzirah works on us. The Yetzirah, the methodology of self-destructive. We tend to harp on our mess-ups and mistakes. We see ourselves as incapable and unworthy. And therefore we have Yeish, we give up. Research shows that at least 70% of the time when we think about the past, we're reliving the negative aspects, not the positive ones. Most people, when they focus on the past, 70% of the time, they're not thinking about the wonderful vacation, the accomplishment, the achievement, what went right. They're thinking about what went wrong, the negative. Al-Tabet Acharecha. When we're too focused on the past, we beat ourselves up, we turn into a pillar of salt that preserves us. We say at night in davening, Hashem, remove the satan from before us and from behind us. Satan before us, I understand. Where is the satan after us? The satan me'acharenu is al-tabet acharecha. Don't turn around and be fixated and focused and preserved and locked in in the past. We spoke about this a few months ago also. Shlomo Hafman quotes, V'anachna nevarach ya me'atav olam halavuka. How do I praise you, Hashem? When I live my life, today, going forward. I messed up yesterday. I didn't have the best week. This didn't represent my best month. So what am I going to do? Focus on that? Get stuck in that? Preserve, marinate in that? In the salt of, of disappointment and failure? No. I'm not going to turn around. Tomorrow will be a better day. It's a fresh start. It's a new beginning. I'm going to be able to grow from here when I bring the mentality of me'ata vi'ad olam. So Lot's wife turns around, she turns into a pillar of salt. Sodom is destroyed. Lot is saved. We have the episode of Lot and his daughters. So also we discussed in the past a bizarre lineage from Mashiach. The Mashiach himself comes from the most salacious, controversial, seemingly immoral, unethical events of Jewish history. Yehuda and Tamar, Lot and his daughters, David and Bathsheba. Mashiach's lineage is filled, his yichus. We make the same joke every time. If Mashiach had to present a shidduch resume, he wouldn't get one day. <laughs> if they looked into who the parents, the grandparents, the great-grandparents were, the history, his lineage, he'd be a very lonely person. Be all alone. Why by design is the yichus like that? And what maybe in this episode between Lot and his daughters, maybe the daughters had some, we spoke about Rav Moshe, met a man who on his deathbed had this dream. He had given a shear where he ripped the daughters of Lot for who they were, promiscuous, morally depraved, and they came to him in a dream, and this man on his deathbed tells Rav Moshe the story. Rav Moshe writes it, his introduction to Igris Moshe. The man on his deathbed says, the daughters of Lot came and said, don't you understand, we didn't do what we did out of moral depravity. We did it because we thought that when Sodom was destroyed, another Mabul had wiped out the world. And we needed to repopulate the world. We're heroines, we're heroes. We asserted ourselves in order to create a sense of continuity. So maybe that story isn't exactly as it seems, and there's something to learn from that. I believe we've discussed that in the past as well. Avram's in Gerar, Sarah is abducted. We go through this uh, process that we've seen before, the old story. Avimelech appeases Avram and Sarah. Yitzchak is finally born. He's bizarrely named Yitzchak. We have this unfortunate interaction and Hagar and Yishmael are expelled. Hashem tells Avram to listen to everything that Sarah says and that's been the mandate for Jewish men ever since. Yishmael, I'm not saying we listened as well as Avram, but we have that charge nonetheless. It's a Jewish tradition. Yishmael is saved. The alliance with Avimelech. And then we have the tenth and final test, which is the Akedah. 
According to some, it's the tenth and final test. According to others, Rabbeinu Yonah says the tenth test comes at the beginning of next week's parsha, not not this one. The Akedah itself, of course, there's a, a gazillion things to talk about. I'll just draw your attention to a couple points within the Akedah, and then we'll look at our specific sukkim together. First of all, on Sunday I gave a shir. It's available online. We're doing the Slalom Rebbe on the parsha. So he spoke about. The only test that Avram engages in, the only test he confronts with the word test is included in the narrative, in the text about the test, is the Akedah. Why? So the Salon Rebbe says, because all the other tests were really Mesiris Haguf, not Mesiris Nefesh. Was Avram willing to die? Was he willing to be a martyr? Was he willing to give his body? Would he die in the Kivshan Ha'ish, in the fiery furnace? Would he give his life? For Tzadikim, giving one's body is easy. We don't welcome it, we live for the here and now. The body is the instrument of free will. It's the ability through which we make the right choices, which draws us close to Hashem. So, you can't praise God in the next world. We live for today. Even the tzaddikim don't hasten, they don't accelerate death, but they're not afraid of death. Because when one dies, one disrobes from the body, which is constricting the soul. That We are a soul and we have a body. The soul is wearing the body, and the soul can't wait to disrobe from the body and not live with the temptation, the distraction, and the restrictiveness of the body that holds it back. So, Sadiqim not afraid from a serious aguf. The willingness to die a martyr to give one's body, the righteous are willing to do. But the Messiris Nefesh, when the Neshama, to tell Avram, I want you to die, Avram says, No problem. But now, Avram, to tell Avram, I want you to kill your son. Here I empowered you, I charged you to teach the entire world that the worst thing you can do is kill a child, sacrifice your own flesh. And now Avram, even though you've taken out ads, even though you've been all over, even though you've been on billboards and newspapers and podcasts and TV interviews telling the world, you've got to stop slaughtering your own children, Avram, I want you to go kill Yitzchak. That's not Mesiris Aguf, that's Mesiris Nefesh. That's asking Avram to do something which is incompatible with his values. And we too are asked to be most nefesh. To be willing to die sometimes is easier than be willing to conform, to be willing to submit to what the Torah asks us our values to be even when they, even when they are incompatible with our Western values or modern values or the values which we feel inclined towards embracing. And that's Mesiris Nefesh. Mesiris Nefesh is greater than Mesiris Aguf and that's why the word test appears here for Avram. V'elokim nisais Avram. So they're walking all together, Avram, Eliezer, Yishmael, Yitzchak, and they get to a spot, and Avram tells them, Shvulachem po. He tells Eliezer and Yishmael, you wait here in Machamor, Am Hadom Elechamor, you guys are just like donkeys, you wait here, the non-donkey Yitzchak and I are going to keep going. It sounds very racist, discriminatory, it doesn't sound very PC, what exactly did Avram mean when he said that? A lot to talk about now for now. But he tells them, Shvulachem po, but we are nelcha ad ko. You're going to wait po here. We're going ad ko. We're going where? There. What's the here and what's the there? Listen to Rabbi Salavichik. As Avram walked with Yishmael and Yitzchak toward Har HaMoriah, he indicated the tension, the fundamental difference in the destination of the non-Jew and the Jew. The word po here represents the universal commitment, the seven commandments that were given to Noah and are incumbent on all mankind. The word ko, which means beyond, suggests a point that's further. The Jew must go beyond po and endeavor to arrive at ko. 
with higher ideals of spiritual attainment. Po is here. How do we navigate the here and now? How do we act ethically and morally in the here and now? The non-Jew is charged. Sheva mitzvahs b'nei Noach. Here are seven guiding laws or principles for how to navigate the here and now. Because this is what there is. The here and now. But the Jew is not living only with an eye on the here and now. For us, it's not just about po. Where are we going? Where is our eye on? Ko. We are traveling there beyond to a higher ideal. The covenantal commitment creates an existential tension because the Jew has a commitment which the non-Jew does not understand. Non-Jews would like the Jews to have a general commitment to and identify themselves with their non-Jewish neighbors. But we repeat to them, to our friends and neighbors, the words Avram addressed to the two lads. Stay here, Po, with the donkey, and I and the boy will go Ko. In this brief sentence, Avram described in the most pointed manner the tension between the Jew and the non-Jew, between the two lads who had a universal commitment and himself and Yitzchak, who shared in the universal commitment, but in addition had a covenantal commitment. The universal commitment he's called Po. The covenantal commitment he called Ko. Stand here and wait for me. We must go there. We must go beyond. The Gentile does not understand the difference between Po and Ko. The conflict between us and our neighbors is acute, but to experience this tension is precisely what it means to be an elected community, the descendants of Avram. The Po, the here and now, subscribes to certain views. Marriage, identity, orientation, values, money. The Po, the here and now, but we don't live in Po. We live at Ko. We live in the world beyond. Our destination is above, is yonder. But I'll say, I'd like to add also, what is the notion of Ko? Perhaps the notion of Ko also is, based on last week's parsha. Hashem tells Avram, go outside, I want you to look, count the stars, you're going to be as great as the stars. Ko yezar echa. So the Medrash says, the nelcha ad ko, where are you going to ko? You're going to the ko of ko yezar echa. What's the connection between these ko's? And we have others in the Torah. So Meir Shapiro, the Lublina Rav, the founder of the Dafyomi, on last week's parsha says such a great insight. What does it mean, ko yezar echa? Hashem tells Avram, go outside, look up. You see the sky is filled with stars? It's hard to see it in a place that has artificial light. I wrote an article after the summer. I was on a trip to Montana. And there on the top of the mountain, it was like nothing I've ever seen before. I can't even describe to you. So in fact, actually, we're doing a series. Dr. Wolf, a member of our shul, who's a physics teacher at the high school, is doing a four-part series on science. And it's ending with a group trip, trip to a... What's it called? Observatory, where he's going to teach us, we're going to look at the observatory to really appreciate the sky. I hope everyone will take advantage. You'll see it advertised soon. So, Hashem Tazavim, go outside. The sky is filled with gazillions of stars. I want you to count them. Now, what would you or I have done? What would we say back to God? All right, God, I get it. It's a lot of stars. We're going to have a lot of kids. Can we move on? What does Avram start to do? One, two, three, four, five, six. Can you count the stars in the sky? Does that hold Avram back from trying anyway? Counting the stars in the sky is impossible. But Avram does the impossible. The fact that it's impossible doesn't hold Avram back from trying to do it anyway. Says Rameir Shapir, the Lublin Rav, that's what God was promising Avram. Ko echa. Your children will be like you. Dream an impossible dream. For them, nothing will be impossible. They'll take it all on. They'll turn the impossible into possible. Just like I just asked you to do something impossible, but you're making it possible. Ko yezarecha. Your progeny, your children, your offspring will do exactly the same. 
they too will turn the impossible into possible. And if that's what ko means, ko yezarecha, they too will stretch for the impossible, maybe that's what it means here also. Vani v'anar nelcha ad ko. You guys live in a world where if it feels impossible, overwhelming, unattainable, you stop. But Yitzchak and I, we live in a world where nothing is impossible. That if Hashem asks us to do it, nothing's beyond our reach. So we are walking ad ko, they're going to the ko of ko yezar echa. Ko amar Hashem, zacharti lachesed naoraych. Now you're going to keep an eye. Every time it says ko in Tanakh, chaf hey, ko. I spoke about this a bunch of years ago when the shul celebrated its 25th anniversary. Ko, 25. We are a people of ko, of 25. Chaf hey, ko yezarecha. No one here is having the 25th anniversary. Maybe somebody. It's a good anniversary speech. You have your tw- Some of you look like you're turning 25. So for your 25th birthday. But ko yezarecha. That quality, that capacity for ko, for that number 25. Ko yezarecha. Vani ko. Ko amar Hashem. We see it throughout. Okay, let's go back and look at our psukim. In the few minutes that we have left. Now you know why we only get through a few. Perak yuches. This is where we left off. Here's my little sticky note. Perak Yilches, Pasuk Chavdalad, chapter 18, verse 24. Chapter 18, verse 24. We're in the middle of the conversation where Avram is protesting. Vayigashe love Avram. Avram has approached the three Vayigashes, the three steps we take to begin our Amuna, our Amida, the Rokeach. So Avram has already protested and he says to Hashem, How can you destroy Saddam? Now, like, what do you mean? Can you imagine our saying, Hashem, how could you destroy Hamas? Maybe there's ten righteous people. That's what Avram is doing when he says, how could you destroy Sodom? Maybe there's ten righteous people. Maybe there's fifty righteous. Why does Avram delineate where these righteous people are? Do we care if they're in the city or the suburb? Or they work the field? Why is Avram specifically identifying Besochair? God, maybe there are 50 people in the city. So, who did I see say something about this? The Ibn Ezra says, well, we'll see it repeated again. Maybe there are 50 people in the city. Would you still stamp it out rather than spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous? What's Rashi? What's he saying? Look at Rashi. How did Avram arrive at that number 50? Why did he start the negotiation with God with the number 50? Well, he said the following. Sodom is the biggest. It's the metropolis. We call it Sodom, but Sodom was made up of how many little cities? Five. The five towns of Sodom. Wow, I wasn't saying anything. I was not... The five towns are a place of tremendous Torah. Amazing things. I'm serious. I'm not joking. They produced my wife. I would not be here. My children would not be here without it. I, that was, I wasn't joking. I mean it. There are five cities, five villages, five towns. So Avram figures a minion from each one. There's five of them. That's 50. So he starts the negotiation with 50. Chalil lecha pasachavei. God forbid, I love when Avram tells God, God forbid, God, God forbid you would destroy the righteous with the wicked. 
Hashem, you have a reputation to uphold. You're the Shofet Kol You are the most righteous. You, the person who stands for justice and righteousness, are going to act in a holy, W-H, unjust and lack of righteous way? How could it be? How could that possibly be? Hashofei kol ha'aretz? You are the source of righteousness. Look at the Sforno. Hashofei kol ha'aretz. Ki biyoz hashofei kol ha'aretz im tadin etzkula achrei ha'rov tashchisos ha'leolam li'safik ki rov b'nei emrashayim. Why are you just destroying Saddam? If this is in fact an act of justice to destroy Saddam because most are wicked, you might as well eliminate the world again because most people who are walking in the world struggle with wickedness. So why elamai? Why do you preserve the world? For the miyot, for the minority who have righteousness. So if that's why you preserve the entire world community, the global community, then you should preserve Stom for the same argument, using the same reason. Says Avram to Hashem. Hashem says, good, I accept the negotiation. If there are in fact 50, yeah, I would spare everyone. I agree, that's righteousness. Now Hashem also answers back by saying, if there are 50 in the city, what if a couple live in the suburbs? Why in the city? So the Ibn Ezra writes, Why does he say? Because I'll spare the city for 50, but not if the 50 are Moranos. If the 50 are only righteous in private, but in public, in public they're corrupt, I'm not sparing the city. I want people who are tochol kaboru who are consistent. If they're righteous in public as in private, I'll spare the city. But if they're only righteous in private, I'm not going to do it. So this says the Ibn Ezra, that's why God responds, besoch ha'ir. These people live in the city. The Ramban has a different interpretation. It says the Ramban besoch ha'ir, ha'nachon be'ena ki avram amar besoch ha'ir le'mor, afilu yiyya ha'nachon besoch ha'roi shi'atziluah. V'amar zeh ba'avur lot, v'chashav ula yeshacherim sham. Why do you say besoch ha'ir? Maybe there are strangers who are there. So they don't have to be born in the city. They're visitors. They're guests. They don't have to be residents and citizens. Who did he have in mind? Lot. So Lot should go towards the camp. And God says, fine. Even even a guest who's passing through, I'll include them in the camp. You get to 50, I'll spare the city. But what happens? They don't get to 50. Now before the negotiation continues, it's interrupted by Avram saying, by the way, by the way, what does he say? By the way, I want to speak to you, Hashem, even though I'm only Afar Ve'efer, I'm dust and ashes. Why does Avram interject that here? What, what, what happened? Continue the negotiation, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10, why is it interrupted by a saying? Isn't it obvious? I want to speak to you, God. Okay, you're in the middle of speaking to me. Why do you have to interrupt and say that? And what are you adding? You're in the middle of pleading the case. And the lawyer is going to tell the judge, you're advocating for a person, and you're going to say, by the way, um, your humble servant, get just, I didn't hire you to stand there and be humble. So why is Avram interrupting now saying he wants to talk to God, he's already talking to God, and by saying, Rashi says, what's offer v'efer? I should have been dust, the king should have killed me, I should have been ashes, I should have burned the fiery furnace. If not for your kindness, God, 
If not for your compassion, I am a goner. I shouldn't have even been here. So Hashem, I know it's bold, I know it's brazen of me to stand here protesting, telling you what to do. Anachi Yofer I shouldn't even be here. I was a goner. I'm only here because of your compassion and your kindness. But if it will, can I approach the bench? I'd like to advocate anyway. Nonetheless, that's what Avram is doing. The Ibn Ezra says, I came from the dust, and I will go back to the dust. So Avram says, with humility and modesty, I know where I'm from and I know where I'm going. And I'm not standing here because I'm so brazen to think I know more than you. I'm finite and you're infinite. You're omnipotent and I'm powerless. But from my little humble perch, from my position, from my perspective, how could I not protest? How could I not say, how could I not say something? The Balaturim says, Mikan sota. Because Avram said, Ani he merited the Efer para, the ashes of the para aduma, as well as the offer of the sota, the concoction the sota drinks in order to exonerate herself. The Svarno says, Afar ve'efer, I know I'm humble, and I don't really understand your answer. But even though I may not understand your answer, I can't live with myself if I don't protest nonetheless. If I don't protest nonetheless. So, Avram describes himself as Afar Ve'efer. Two things I want to say about this. One is, perhaps this is a source for the idea that we say Tachanun. What am I talking about? What does Tachanun have to do with anything? What do we do? We stand up and we say the Amida. And the Amida is in first person. Baruch Atah Hashem. Atah God, give me this. Give me this. Give me that. This is how I see the world. Heal that person. Give that person parnasa. This is what should happen for justice. God, you, 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 you. Do this, do this, do this. Who are we? What right do we have? Where is our license to daven? To take three steps forward. As I said, the Rokeach's three Vayigashes for Avram. Yehuda and Eliyahu, all Vayigash. We too take an Amida, we take three steps forward. And then like Avram, you should do this, you should do that, you do the other thing. God says, excuse me? I should do what? Do you know who you are versus who I am? How categorically inferior, different, inconsequential, pathetic, nothing you are? What right, what license do we have to tell God what to do? The answer is, Vayigash, I love Avram. Because Avram stood up and told God what to do. Now what happens when Avram stands up and tells God what to do? Immediately, he recoils. And he says, even though I've just been so brazen to tell you my interpretation of the world, he recoils and says, but I do recognize my place. I'm off of Efer, I'm nothing. What do we do right after our Amida? We collapse on our arm and we say, Tachanan. God, I'm a gurnished, I'm a nothing, I'm pathetic, I'm sad, I'm invisible, I'm inconsequential, you're everything. We have a right to protest, to object, to stand up, to tell Hashem based on how we see the world, what we think should happen. But we have to do it in the context of humility. We have to recognize afterwards that whatever Hashem responds, He's greater. We submit our protest, but then we accept whatever the result. Hare Anochi Afer is parallel to our experience of Tachanan when we conclude our, when we conclude our Amidah. Rav Dessler has another interpretation of Afar Ve'efer. I heard this from a Meshulach. He came and unsolicited gave me a beautiful Dvar Torah from Rav Dessler, which I really enjoyed. He said the following, and I reserve the right to use this for a Yizkud Russia sometime in the future. He said, what does it mean when Avram says, I'm Afar Ve'efer, and we say we're Afar Ve'efer? What does that mean? 
Afar is dust. Afer is ash. What's the distance between difference between Afar and Afer, dust and ash? One represents the past and one represents the future. And what Avram is saying to Hashem is, I have a past and I'll also have a future. When we say we're Afar ve'efer, we say in our end of our davening on Yom Narayim, we're Afar ve'efer, we invoke the same imagery, we're invoking the idea that we have a past, but we also have a future. We're part of a continuum. We're not here all by ourselves. This is a very powerful passage that Avram is protesting. He's in this negotiation with Hashem, of which there's so much more to say. The Kliyakar here talks about the negotiation of 50. How did he arrive at that number? Rashi told us 10 in each of these five cities. But then why did he go down to 9? Why did, he, why did he go all the way down, which would represent less than 10? 45, 40, 30, 20. So the Kliyakar takes you through what Avram's calculation was in each of these we have a halacha. When you start with Zavar you need 10. To do a holy activity, say Kaddish, Kedusha, you need 10. What if your minion began with 10 and somebody walked out? Can you continue? Can you say the Kaddish after Shemona Esrei? You began Chazar Sashatiyu at 10, somebody walked out. You only have 9. Can you say the Kaddish afterwards? The halacha is yes. So that was Avram's next argument. Maybe there were 10. Someone walked out. But except that if there's 40, now 9 from every city. So someone walked out. The Kliyakar goes through exactly what Avram's tactic, what his methodology was in, in advancing each one of these arguments. So fine, Hashem is satisfied if I find 45. Maybe if you find 40. Maybe 30. What about 20? Fine, 20. But he couldn't even find 10. And when he couldn't find 10, they went their separate ways. They went their separate ways. Why didn't Avram ask about 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1? What if there's one righteous person in all five cities? Why did Avram stop at 10? Rashi tells us, because the generation of the flood at eight, Noah, Hubanov, and Hashem, Doram, there were eight Noah and his family, they couldn't spare the whole generation. They weren't enough. And there's no ninth. So Avram knew that less than ten, there's not even a chance. There's no shot. Don't bother. God When the lawyer has no more arguments, the judge retreats to his chamber. So Avram was done, so Hashem left. Once the judge leaves, so then the lawyer, the defense attorney leaves. And now it's time for the prosecutor to prosecute. So God leaves, because there's no more arguments, the judge is done. He goes back to his chamber. The judge left, the defense attorney has nothing more, he leaves. Who's left? Only the prosecutor. To go and to sentence the person. So now you have the angels who go to Sodom in order to destroy Sodom. Says the Ibn Ezra, where did Avram go? Avram He went to Chevron. Even though it looks like this conversation is happening next to Sodom, the Ibn Ezra brings evidence that it's really happening where? In, in Chevron. Avram 
Cain left while God was still talking. Avram only left when God had nothing more to say. Do we interrupt God because we've got something else to get to? Or do we only take leave when the moment of holiness has passed? We'll just end with Rabbi Salavechik on this. He says, This phrase become a foundation of our worldview. The Allah built on the laws of modesty and the dichotomy of importance and worthlessness. We have this balance. On the one hand, we are We're just beneath God. But on the other hand, we're afar ve'efer, we're nothing. That's the famous, every Jew has to walk around with a petak in each pocket. Sometimes you pull out and you say, olam. When you're feeling low and insignificant, you say, the whole world is for me. And when you're feeling high on your horse and arrogant, you pull out the anochi afar ve'efer. I'm nothing. So on the one hand, we have to recognize our importance, the difference we can make, that we matter, but also with that, our modesty, the message of that we are dust and we are ashes at the same time. The expression used by Avram seems to conflict with the concept of human dignity, the very idea so well exemplified by Avram as he fulfilled the mitzvah of the In fact, the opposing motifs of man's lowliness and greatness are both true. Here in the prayer to God on behalf of stone, Avram uses the expression, Anochi offer ve'efer. The approach to God during prayer should reflect man's utter helplessness. So when do we feel important? When we're trying to make a difference in the world. When do we feel we're nothing? When we stand before Hashem in davening. Avram here is modeling davening. Avram is turning to Hashem and protesting for Sodom. So when I'm out there trying to make a difference in the world, when I'm using my initiative, taking human initiative, so then it's all about me. Right? There's a famous statement, a famous saying. Act as if it's all up to you, pray as if it's all up to God. When we act, it's all up to us. We have to give it our best, we have to feel important, we have to feel significant. But when we're davening, we have to realize, I am absolutely nothing, I'm a gurnished, it's really all up to Hashem. This passage is so important because this is the license we have to pray. We may have a Tehillim gathering tonight for somebody who unfortunately may need it, we'll know later. Why do we get together and say Tehillim? We're protesting to Hashem like Avram. We're saying, Hashem, you're omnipotent, we're afar ve'efer. In the end, we concede to your vision of the world and what's right for people. But how could we, not, how could we live with ourselves if we don't protest? We're here to object. We're here to protest. We're here to say from our finite, limited perspective and vision, this isn't just, it's not right. These are amazing people, people we love, that they have illness, that they have challenge, that they're suffering. We're protesting like Avram protested for Saddam. In the end we win, some, and other times we lose. But no matter how many times we've lost, we've got to get up and protest the next time again. With the mentality and with the context of Afar Ve'efer, with the understanding that we are nothing and that we concede and submit to Hashem. But that doesn't hold us back from protesting and objecting nonetheless. That's our mission. That's what it means to be the progeny of Avram. Avram protested about Sodom, about the most morally depraved, corrupt, terrible society, maybe ever. And yet Avram protested on their behalf. So for the amazing, righteous people we know, we're going to be silent. We're not going to take advantage of the opportunity to daven. What is davening if not our protest? Three times a day we take three steps forward and we say, Hashem, I don't know if you want to hear it or not, but I'm here to tell you my view of how things should be. I'm off of Ephraim. I'm going to say Tachanun in a minute. Right after I do that, I'm going to collapse on my arm and concede and submit to your will, to how you see things. 
But first I got to tell you how I see things. Because I care about and love the people around me. Because if they're in pain, I'm in pain. Which is what we saw from the Chassam Sofer and Simchas Torah, the woman shear. That every act of prayer is a prayer for ourselves. So when I pray for someone else, what I'm saying is, if they're suffering, I'm suffering. And I'm here to protest. I'm here to object. What you'll determine, I'm off of Efer. I'll accept it. But I can't live with myself if I don't protest first. All right, everyone, have a great day.